Let's go to Isaiah chapter 57. Let me read something to you. You'll find it in your handout. Listen to uh, this passage and the description of who God is. Isaiah 57, verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up. This is God. Who is high and lifted up. Who inhabits eternity. Whose name is holy. So Paul's there. In that verse so far, what you have is the transcendence of God, the godness of God, the unknowable part of who God is, the part of God that is beyond our ability to conceive. And then watch the eminence. Transcendence means he's far away. Eminence is he's close. I dwell in the high and the holy place and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit to receive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. Tonight we're going to focus not so much on the eminence and the closeness of God. That is a good thing to think of, but we don't talk very much about some of those attributes about God that are hard to think about. You'll notice the summary statement. Let me read it to you and uh, see if I can explain some of it. Summary. The incommunicable, incommunicable, that word means those that cannot be shared. The, in, the attributes of God that are His and can't be anybody else's. The incommunicable attributes of God are His characteristics or perfections as revealed by Scripture that God does not communicate or share with human beings. In other words, those traits or attributes that he has that we can't have, that which describes and makes him, makes him God. One of the passages that I think is good to go to is in Colossians chapter 1. I have it there on your um, paper. It's a description of Jesus, but also gives us a picture of God. Listen to this description. He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Okay, he's invisible. He is the firstborn of all creation. Now, here's some of these things that can't be shared. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and were created for him. That is something that is uniquely about God. In fact, let's just go through some of the things. You, any, any word that you uh, want to describe God with and you put omni on it, like omniscience, so omniscience, omniscience, he knows everything, you can say those, that's specifically, uniquely God. I'd like to point out a couple of other things. Here's the first one, number one. The independence. The independence of God. Let me show what I mean by that. Right, let me give you a definition, then maybe read some of the scripture. The independence of God. That is the divine attribute, the divine attribute of self-existence. That he exists outside of anybody else. He is not dependent on anything or anyone. God's very nature, a good way to understand this is, God's very nature is to exist. If he is God, then he exists. Creatures, you and I, we are completely dependent, right? This is how God is different from us. We are dependent on God. 
He is not dependent on anything. He is completely independent. Let's talk about his existence. You'll see it in Exodus chapter 3. Exodus 3 is the famous passage where God reveals himself to Moses. Remember that? And he's calling Moses to go and lead the people out of Egypt. Moses says, whom shall I say sent me? What am I going to tell them? And the verbal form of God, it's right there in Exodus 3. God said to Moses, I am who I am. Or if you, does the King James, anybody have King James? Did, what Does it say I am that I am? I am that I am. I think Charlton Heston did that. Uh, remember the Ten Commandment movie? Some of you are old enough to remember that. Right? Y'all, I mean, y'all, some of you are old enough. I am that I am. The, the statement is a, a verbal statement that is to be. That I exist all before me. I existed all in front of me. I exist, and, and God tells Moses, you tell them that the great I am. The existing one. The one that is. The one that has no need. I am that I am, he said. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name. So his very name is the one who exists. He is not dependent on anyone. Well, you jump over to the New Testament. And when Jesus is revealing something about his nature, who he is, listen to what he says in John chapter 5, verse 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. You and I don't, we have to have things to, we depend on the air, food, one another, God. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit depends on nothing. A really good place to go for this is in Acts chapter 17. You see Acts 17, you, some of you turned the page too quickly. I heard you turn the page. Acts chapter 17, Paul is speaking to uh, people that believed in God, but not the God of the Bible. Remember, he was at the Areopagus, and he's making a defense of this unknown God, and he's talking and drawing the, the connection. And in Acts 17, listen to what Paul says. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, he does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So we're making the point, what is one of those uh, incommunicable attributes of God? One of them is his independence. An incommunicable, I have to work at that word, an incommunicable attribute is one that is not shared with humans. This is his godness. This is what makes him God. Okay, one of this is independence. Uh, another one is, you can turn the page now. Another one is his immutability. Immutability. This is an important attribute of God. This is part of what makes him God. Immutability means that he doesn't change. That he, he is not changing. He is not whimsical. He doesn't one day angry at something, the next day happy at something. What you see of him in the Old Testament is what we know of him in the New Testament. 
The plan for man's salvation in the Old Testament is the same as the plan for man's salvation in the New Testament. That he is exactly the same. Now you might say, well, what about the passages that say what, that, uh, that God changed his mind? Anybody know any of those passages? What passage? Genesis 6. Yeah, Genesis 6. There at the flood, I regret. Or you can find it over in 1 Samuel 15, uh, I regret. That, that usually is the argument. Okay, you say that God doesn't change. Well, I go to here. What about when uh, Noah, not Noah, Jonah went to Nineveh and he preached judgment. God said that he's going to destroy the place and then the people repented. What about that? And he didn't destroy them. Well, let's work backwards. With the one that, uh, about Jonah, that is a conditional. That Had they not repented, God's coming through with that. But what we know about God in the Bible is that if people repent, He relents from judgment. That is a truth that runs throughout the Bible. Uh, the one in Genesis 6 is a little more difficult. You have to use the word anthropomorphism. Y'all know that word? I didn't just make it up. Anthropomorphism. That is anthros, man. Anthropomorphism is a characteristic of man that is attributed to God to help us understand so, so we know that sin grieves. That God hates sin and He grieves at it. You take that understanding over here to Genesis 6. Here is Moses trying to write it in such a way that we understand what, what is the reaction to sin. That's what you find there. And you find it also in 1 Samuel 15. So let's talk about immutability. Here's a, a good way to understand immutability. God is unchanging God is unchanging, and yet He is constantly acting. So God doesn't change, and yet He's always doing something, always acting. He is, he, is, um, he is immutable in terms of His essence. He, he is immutable, unchanging in terms of His Godness. For instance, God eternally... God eternally exists as Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right? We believe that. We believe that Jesus, as the Son of God, He has eternally existed. The, the Trinity has eternally existed. At the Incarnation, Jesus died on the cross, rose from the grave, ascended. We believe that Jesus bodily, as a man, ascended into heaven. And as a man sits at the right hand of God, he intercedes, have an intercession, an intercessor for us. We believe that. This is part of our doctrine. You know, for a long time, oh, somebody get on television, maybe a professional athlete of some kind who is a Christian, might say something like this. I just want to thank the man upstairs. Well, that really irritates me. Right? But the truth is, He's right. There is a man in heaven interceding. That's Jesus. So we believe in the unchanging nature of who, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The un, he's unchanging not only in his nature, but Jesus is unchanging in his, uh, God is unchanging in his perfection. God is unchanging in his plans. God doesn't change his plans. 
What God has done with Jesus for us in the New Testament was not His reaction to man's sin. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus was part of the eternal plan of God. So it doesn't change in His perfection, doesn't change in His plans. That doesn't mean that He's not moving, right? We don't believe in a God that is stoic and withdrawn. We believe that, for instance, that God responds to prayer. We believe that. You have a problem going on. You, you take that to the Lord and you believe that God responds to prayer. We pray for people. Why do we pray for lost people? We believe that God responds to that and then will bring conviction to their hearts and awaken them to believe. I mean, that's why we pray. Because we believe that, that our God is a responding God, but not a changing God. We believe that God forgives people when they repent. There are a couple of good verses to uh, call your attention to. You'll see them there under immutability. Here's the first one, Malachi 3. The Lord says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, based on the fact that I am immutable, therefore, you, old children of Jacob, are not consumed. Or you think, well, that's the Old Testament. What about the New? Well, there's something in James. James chapter 1, verse 7. That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Um, that should have gone a little further. He's <laughs> like, well, what does that have? Let's go to James. James, because it's actually a really good, uh, good verse. James chapter 1, verse 7. Anybody have it in front of them? Wait, I got it, I got it, I got it, I got it. Okay, let me read it. Yeah, 117 is what it should be. Every good gift and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. That is something to think of. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Well, there's one of the Psalms you can read. Let me show you the Psalm. Psalm 102, verse 26 and 27. This is also quoted over in Hebrews. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away, but you are the same. Your years have no end. Or I guess my favorite is in Ephesians chapter 1. The, the nature of God's plans do not change. One of the great books to go for security, I wish I had waited to preach through Ephesians after I had been here a little longer. When I got here, we did uh, the year of the Bible, and then we went to the Gospel of John, and then we went to Ephesians. I wish I had waited until about now, because I feel like we can slow down a little bit and think about. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, says that in Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. There, it's all kind of packed in there. So one of the words we don't ever need to be afraid of is pre, predestination. People say, do you believe in predestination? I absolutely do. Why? Because Paul wrote it. I have an obligation to believe that. I would like to know what you mean by predestination, 
But I believe what it says here, right? Also believe that if God has made a plan, that means that He has destined a future. He has written it out, made a plan for the future. These things, when you think about the godness of God, He's big enough to carry the freight of us wondering, how then does He, how can He predestine everything and yet not violate? Because the question normally is, okay, well, then our, what about man's free, free will up against God's sovereignty? Well, number one, man's free will melts in the face of God's sovereignty. Okay, it just does. There's not, you don't have two things that are competing that are equally strong. God's sovereign over all things. In fact, He's so sovereign, He can be sovereign over my ability to make a choice, a very real choice, a choice with consequence. I genuinely believe that the choices I make have actual consequences, that I have a will that is in bondage to sin, but in a manner of speaking, is free under the sovereignty of God. One of, one of the attributes of God is the fact that He's big enough to handle all of that, right? And so I, somehow I got off on that. I didn't mean to. But we're talking about the immutability, the unchanging plan of God that actually does have a plan, and our lives fit into that plan. Our real choices fit into the plan of God. He didn't look, and, and don't try to give God an out. Here's what a lot of people do. To give God an out, they'll say, well, God looked down into the future, saw the choices that you made, and then based his plan on that. Well, that's a weird way of thinking about it, right? Isn't God big enough? Isn't he big enough that he, his, he is able, without sin, he is able to work through the lives of people, even making wrong decisions to accomplish his perfect plan? He did it with Jesus on the cross. Why can't he do it with, with our lives? Okay, I... Going back to the, to the outline. Immutability. Let's talk about the eternality. Eternality. You hear people talk about, uh, and we talk about this, that you give your life to Christ, and because of that, you have eternal life, that we are eternal beings. But really, God is the only eternal one. We ha actually had a beginning. We did not have an end, but we did have a beginning. With God, according to what the Bible teaches, there is no beginning or end. Eternality. That means that God is not bound by time. He's not bound by time, but has always existed. That means He has no beginning. He has no end. He has no development. In fact, this is one of those pieces of doctrine that started to slip into Baptist churches just like ours about 25 years ago. Um, it was known as the, the openness of God. That there were some things that God didn't actually know. If He didn't actually know them, how could He, you know, the question, how is He, I mean, how is He God? That there's some open-ended for the future, and a guy named Clark Pennick was the guy, was the uh, scholar that sort of made this popular. Don't go look him up, Clark Pinnock. Don't read anything he writes. Um, that's who, who's in, who uh, was responsible for the openness of God. What we believe is that God is eternal. A couple of verses to uh, call your attention to. Psalm chapter 90, verse 2, and I would also uh, give you verse 4. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever 
You had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. So we sing that, but if you slow down to think about that. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. Psalm 106. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say, Amen, praise the Lord. And then, then down in 2 Peter, the New Testament, this is one we use a lot. Uh, by the way, I don't, don't use this verse to, uh, I don't like to use this verse to talk about a, a young or old earth. Um, to keep it in its context. This is pointing to the, the eternal nature of God. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Now, having said that, although he is eternal and operates outside of time, he also operates in, in time. You read the New Testament, and the New Testament seems to say that at the right time, Jesus died for the ungodly. You think about, uh, th just think history with me for a moment. When Jesus died on the cross and above, the, above him on the cross, you have in languages, the known languages, Latin and Greek and uh, Arabic, Jesus Christ, Son of God. And in the, with the Pax Romana, the, the peace of Rome, at that very moment, it meant that people could travel throughout the known world and they could carry the gospel. It was the exact right time. So, so God does, although he transcends time, he operates in, in time. Let me give you a, a fourth. Whew. How many did I write of these? Six, okay. Well, maybe we'll just give you four. Um, the fourth one. Omnipresence. 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 And you can take the omni and put that in several of the words, and that is something that only God is. But let's just use omnipresent. That means he's all present. That God is present everywhere all the time. That God is present everywhere with his entire being at the same time. That God is present everywhere with his entire being at the same time. I had to say that to myself about 10 times a day. So God is present everywhere with his entire being at the same time. That's omnipresent. He is not limited by space. He, God is infinitely exalted over all creation. And he is omnipresent with all of his characteristics everywhere at the same time. Let me give you a couple of passages to maybe prove it. Omnipresence. Psalm 139, uh, 7 through 12 is a really good one. Don't you love this psalm? Either you love it or it scares you to death, right? Honestly, I mean, you read it and think, good night. So let me just read it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, which is the grave, or you might even call it hell, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, 
Even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Okay, in one regard, that is a really comforting, honestly, that is a really, even when you are in the deepest pit of your sin, and you think you are running away from God, when you start to think about the omnipresence, that God is everywhere all the time with all of who He is, that you don't get away from Him. I, and even the phrase, a lot of churches are using the phrase, I want to help people that are far away from God to draw near to God. Well, let's be careful. Where are you going to go to get far away from God? You're not going anywhere. I mean, I understand, the, I understand, understand what the uh, motive behind that is, but phraseology makes a difference when you start talking about theology. The truth is not just getting closer to God. The, the better word is how I submit myself to the lordship of who God is. That's another thing about this is very scary in some regards is that, uh, that he, he is there and not only watching, He's with you. So if you're with a prostitute, He's with you. If you're involved in something, if you think nobody sees it, He's there. This psalm is probably meant for, to be a comfort, but it also is a reminder of our good God that is, that is with us. In fact, First uh, Kings, my devotion, I'm using the McShane plan, getting through First Kings. I'll be glad to be out of Ezekiel at some point. I have to read it a couple of times uh, sometime. But First Kings chapter eight, verse twenty-seven. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built? The omnipresence of God. Okay, that's a really exciting, I like that word. Let's go to one that's kind of hard. I've had a hard time understanding. I don't know if I will explain it well, but one of those attributes of God that um, is not communicable is simplicity. Simplicity. What an, when I read that the first time, I thought, that, that doesn't sound like a very flattering, simple. I mean, I've been called simple-minded before, and I didn't think about it. People didn't mean something nice by that. So simplicity, what do we mean by that? God is His attribute. God is His attribute. Whatever attribute you put to Him, He is that. God is not composed of different parts. We are not simple, we are complex. We are spirit and body, mind, soul. That is, that is not God. God is simple. We are complex. He is, for instance, First uh, John 4, 8, God is what? God is love. So He is every bit of love at the same time. That's who He is. Or... Um, what about 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 and 16? But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, 
since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So God is love, all the love that he can absolutely be to the uttermost. He is that. He is also holy, as holy as he can possibly be. He is also, um, take Exodus 34, God is jealous. Not like, when you hear the word jealous, not like uh, I might be jealous for something. Uh, that I, I can't be righteously jealous because I have a sinful nature. I can't be truly jealous like God is. He's jealous for his holiness. But he is fully that. It's important for us to, um, to, to try to grasp that in some regard as we think about uh, his attributes, that he is that. And so when we say that God is love, we don't mean that God just loves, that he is a combination of love and mercy. He's part love and part mercy. He's part righteous and part compassionate. No, he's all of that. If that's one of his attributes, he's every bit of that at the same time. I think I'm going to talk myself in a circle if I keep on, but you get the idea. Simplicity. Let me give you another, um, let me give you another attribute. Um, God is spirit, spiritually, or spirituality. John chapter 4, verse 24, the text says that God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Colossians 1, 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is the image of the invisible God. 1 Timothy 1, 17, it's a beautiful passage. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Spirit, he is spirit. See, God is immaterial in his nature. He, he has no physical aspect. Spirit, the invisible God. Now, these are in communicable attributes. But there's a verse that I want to just call your attention to. Um, and for these incommunicable, for these things that we can't get our hands on, God ought to be worshipped because of that. His holiness, that He's completely loved, that He's complete mercy. In fact, Jeremiah speaks to this in Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. All throughout the book of Ezekiel, this judgment is coming and God follows it up and he says that they will know that I am the Lord. It is by grace that we can actually know God because of his self-revelation. This is one of the things we need to get a hold of, that, that God actually can be known. God can be known, but he cannot be fully understood. God can be known to the degree we can know something or someone, but we can't know all of who God is. We can know what God has revealed to us. Knowing God is a grace. Let me give you four 
uh, major affirmations. There are others that you could put in here, but um, let me give you four of them. The first one is the, the, uh, the knowability, knowability of God. From the opening page of Scripture, you start in Genesis chapter 1, the Bible all throughout assumes that God is able to be known. One of the ma major tenets of our religion is we believe that you can actually know God. One of the reasons we have Bible study, one of the reasons our kids are, are learning the Bible right now, you come to worship, one of the reasons we read theology, why? We want to know God. Why? We believe that He actually has made it so that we can know Him. We call that self-revelation. God can be known because He has chosen to reveal Himself to His creatures. In fact, you might say it like this. God's free choice, His free choice to make Himself known through general and special or specific revelation. We'll talk about that in a moment. So he's chosen to do that. And the second thing is, to some degree, we are like him in that we are made in his image. So every person here, every man and woman, little babies, made in the image of God. If that's the case, then he's made us with the capacity. We are created, every one of us, with the capacity to actually know God. Let's talk some about some things you probably have heard before, but we'll uh, try to put some clarity the first way God shows himself is through general revelation. General revelation. What is general revelation? What is general? General revelation is God's disclosure of himself to all people in all places at all times. General revelation is God revealing himself to all people in all locations, at all times, around the globe. There's a part of who God is that He has revealed to every living creature that's ever been on planet Earth. That is general revelation. There are a couple of categories for that, that God reveals Himself. Uh, one of them is creation. So God reveals Himself in creation, and he reveals himself in creation to all people in all places at all times. In fact, Romans 1 is a great place to go for that. Romans 1 verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed. That's interesting to me. It's the wrath. That's, that's worth going back. Maybe we'll talk about that in January. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, here comes general revelation. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, His eternal power, His divine nature, they all have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Where, where are they perceived? In the things that have been made. So people are without excuse. I'll stop there. So you have creation. That in creation, God has shown himself. You'll find it also in Psalm, 90, uh, Psalm 19. The heavens, you know this passage? Here's general revelation. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaim his handiwork. 
day-to-day pours out speech. So the, the point is, God is showing himself in general revelation. The problem with general revelation is, if you don't have specific revelation, according to Romans 1, general revelation without specific re- revelation is God's wrath. Here's what I mean. If you have general revelation and so you know that there is a God, you've got that part. But you don't have the specific revelation. You don't know how to know that God. How does God show himself? He shows himself through creation. He shows himself through our conscience. Through Every one of you here has a conscience. Every person. Now, some of you have a more sensitive conscience than others. But you have a threshold of something that it bothers you, unless you're a robot. We all have, a, that is there by the gift of God. It is the fact that God has shown himself, lets us know something of God's standards. And in fact, Romans 2 tells us it's been put, it's been put in us. Another way God shows himself in general revelation, not just creation or content, is, is God's providence, his control, how things work together, Acts 14. Another way God shows us, General revelation is the the innate sense. All of us have an innate sense of God. There's not a known part of the world where explorers have gone and discovered people that don't worship something. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has put eternity into the heart of man. He knows to worship. That's no ability and general revelation. Let's talk about special revelation. Special revelation. Now, I would give a disclaimer. Um, if you read this book, 50 Core Truths, with special revelation, he lists several things like scripture, historical events, dreams and visions, incarnation. All of them, he lists them in the context of Scripture. So I'm going to put them all into Scripture. What is special revelation? Special revelation is the Scripture that points us to Christ. Let me read what Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 15, 16, and 17. How from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise. This is what the Bible does. To make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is breathed out by God. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God might be complete and equipped for every good work. It is there and given to us to point us to Christ. That is special revelation. Uh, I think you can make a good argument that... um, Special revelation is the incarnation. Jesus became man. That is God's special revelation to us. We find that described in the Bible. This is why we do what we do on Wednesday nights, opening the Bible. This is why we we have our children learning the Bible. Why? Because that's where people are taught who Christ is. It's not enough to know that there is a God. That's general revelation. General revelation without the gospel is damning. Go and read Romans 1. Romans 1 says it is the wrath of God being revealed. 
How's it being revealed? People seeing that there is a God and yet rejecting that God. It's, this informs why we do church like we do it. This informs why if you go to a Sunday school small group, there normally is a, someone there with a Bible. They're going to talk about what does the Bible say. Because why? That is special revelation. Special revelation is not God giving you a word or telling you something to tell someone else. Special revelation is not you thinking God told me to go and give this person $100. If, if you are impressed to do that, that is a good thing to do. I hope that it works out well and is honoring to the Lord and God blesses your generosity. That is not special. Special revelation is, is the perfect word of God that points us to Jesus Christ. And without special revelation, general revelation is, is a condemning fact. So that the beauty of the earth, really, without the glory of the gospel, the beauty of creation becomes something that sends people to hell. Why? Because they see that there is a God and reject. Okay, so I, let me give you one more. <clears throat> that is the incomprehensibility. I like that word. That's a good one to end on, isn't it? Incomprehensibility. This, you know what this reminds us? The incomprehensibility of God reminds us the difference between the infinite God and finite people. The fact that we we can't wrap our minds around things. The fact that we cannot adequately explain how God can be intricately sovereign over all things and yet man make a decision. This is, this is, a, this is a comfort to me. Do you want to worship a God that you can explain? That you can line out and tell this is how it works? I, there's some things that I have to say, I, don't, I just don't know. One of the great uh, verses that we fall back on, and I think you should fall back on, is Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. So there are some things about God that have not been revealed to us. We can genuinely know God. We can't know all that there is to know about God. We can genuinely know God, but we can't know all that there is to know about God. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed, general and specific revelation, the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of the law. You see, God is knowable. God is knowable in the way that and to the degree that he makes himself known. God is knowable in the way, through Jesus, in the way and to the degree he makes himself known, both in general and specific revelation. And if you are a believer here, this should, this should make you thank God for His grace in your life that He has, according to what Jesus says, He has shown Himself to you in the person of Jesus.
that our God is knowable. And if that's the case, I want to know him more. We do that. General revelation tells me there is a God. Specific revelation tells me who he actually is.